call your attention now to the passage where the sermon is based. Mark chapter 14, verses 53 until the end of the chapter, verse 72. Mark 14, 53 to 72. And the title of the message is Irony and Glory. The unveiling of Christ's identity. Irony and glory. The identity. The unveiling of Christ's identity. 1453 to 72. Here is the word of our God. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the cards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warm himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, 
you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Let us pray once again. Father, it's not my, by my power or the ability of the listeners that our hearts can be changed. Our trust is only in the power of the Holy Spirit and the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name that we pray. I'm convinced that one of the ways that God has helped me to overcome lukewarmness and coldness in my spiritual life is when he pulls back the curtains of heaven through his word so that I may see the majesty of my master. Savior Jesus Christ. And I think this text by the power of the Holy Spirit may give us this identity and have heavens open to us to see who Jesus is once again. If you notice, the climax of the narrative is in verse 61, when the high priest asked Jesus if he is the son of the blessed. That's the climax. It's all about Jesus' identity. And this text will tell us with ironies. You know what irony is? To emphasize a reality by saying the opposite what you, what you are saying. If you're seeing someone who is very thin and skinny and you say, you're a very fat guy. So that's an irony. You're saying the opposite of reality in order to make a point. The narrative does the same here. But in a particular way, it is called dramatic irony. which results from the audience, audience sharing with the author knowledge unavailable to one or more characters. There is the evangelist Mark, let the reader, you and me, let us know more than the characters involved in this story, except Jesus, can perceive. So now that we are reading, we know more than the characters knew at that time. And Mark will tell us four ironies, revealing us four identities of Jesus. The first one is that he is the brave master. Verses 53 and 54. It says there in verse 53 and 54 this, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard, of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, for you to understand 
this first identity of Jesus, that he is the brave master, you have to know about a literary device that Mark is using in his gospel, which is commonly called sandwich. He starts with a story, and then he changes with another story, and then he comes back to the same story that he had begun. And that's what you have here. He begins with Peter outside of the building, the courtyard, and then he goes inside of the building where Jesus is being tried, and then he comes back to Peter in verses uh, 66 until the end. And I know he's doing that on purpose because he repeats himself to, for you to see the bread, right? Peter and Peter and then Jesus. Peter, Jesus, Peter. He connects both sections, the beginning and the end, uh, by mentioning Peter warming himself in the courtyard of the trial in verse 54. And then he repeats in verse 67, then he's warming himself. While Jesus, at the same moment, after boldly confessing who he is, who Jesus is, and is beaten by the guards of the high priest, the same guards that Peter is sitting with in verse 54. You see the sandwich? So that kind of literary device is for you to compare Peter with Jesus. You lose much if you don't read that way. Because both Jesus and Peter are on trial. And when you contrast them, you see how brave your master is. When you see Jesus in light of Peter, you see the bravery of your master. Let me tell you how. See, with me in the text. Jesus was falsely accused in verse 56. While Peter is truthfully accused in verse 67, 69, and 70. You see the comparison? Jesus is accused of blasphemy after telling the truth in verse 64. And Peter curses while telling a lie in verse 71. You see the irony? You see the stark contrast that Mark is making when you read that way? Jesus reveals his identity in verses 61 and 62, while Peter conceals, hides his identity in verses 67, 70, and 71. While Jesus, here's the point, bravely answers the high priest, revealing his identity, he says, I am. In verse 61, Peter is afraid. See the contrast? 
Jesus bravely answers. Peter is afraid of confessing that he is Jesus' follower to a female servant of the high priest. Do you see the irony? It is very ironic. That's the point of the text. Jesus is facing the most powerful men in Israel in their religious, religious context. While Peter is afraid of a little girl, of a teenage girl, of the high priest. You see the fragility, the feebleness, the weakness of the disciple in comparison with the boldness, courageous, bravery character of your master. And there's more. While Peter is sitting with the guards in verse 54 in the courtyard, the guards are hating Jesus in verse 65. Foretelling, for foretelling that he, Jesus, will sit, that's in verse 62, at the right hand of God. You see, while Peter is sitting with the guards, Jesus is foretelling that he will sit at the right hand of God. The line Peter goes out free and without harm. Jesus, who speaks the truth, is bound and tortured and ends on a cross. What a great contrast, don't you think? And what an irony when you see the beauty of this narrative being put together for you to read one in light of the other. So that you can have the curtains of heaven pulled back, as it were, so that you can see once again the bravery of the best master who walked in the face of this earth. Can you see his greatness, the greatness of your Savior, and fear him more? Here's the application. You should see yourself as Peter in contrast to Jesus, right? That's how I should read the text. I am Peter, and the Lord Jesus is my master. Can you see yourself? Can I see myself? In this irony, you need to see the good news of the denial of Peter and the greatness of our brave master. The good news of the denial of Peter? Yes. That's where you see the greatness of the grace of God. That someone like that who walked with Jesus for three years is able to deny three times and is still be forgiven. To, to receive repentance. To be broken down and weep not with Tears of crocodile, but real, genuine tears and be forgiven. That's the good news. That despite of being coward, a liar, 
A weak disciple is able to weep. To be forgiven because he has a brave master. By denying and be ashamed of Jesus in this adulterous and seafoam generation, Peter vividly illustrates Jesus' teaching of Mark 8.35. Pay attention to this. It's part of the application. Which says in Mark 8.35 that the one who seeks to save his life will lose it. Ironically, in contrast, Jesus in the trial is the one who is willing to lose his life in order to gain life. You see that? How beautiful this gospel is? He's using what he taught in chapter 8. Now in chapter 14, he illustrates with Jesus. Peter, who deserves to lose his life because he's trying so hard to save it, will have it bought back but the one who will, who will save his life, life of Peter, precisely because Jesus is willing to lose it bravely, with boldness. This contrast between Jesus and Peter in the trial ironically explains how the brave master Jesus came, came to give his life as a ransom for his feeble disciple Peter and us. Because of his bravery to save his life, our lives were saved and our sins forgiven. For that reason, you should rejoice in your brave master and see the greatness of that Savior. Go boldly to him like Peter did after the resurrection. Rejoice and celebrate and enjoy this brave master Jesus. And with that in mind... Because he lost his life in order to save yours. Lose your life because of him. And kill your sin of fearing man. Isn't it the point here? Peter is more afraid of a little girl than afraid of God. Oh, Jesus is more afraid of God than a high priest. For you to get rid of fear of man is to have the fear of God in your heart. And in order for you to have the fear of God in your heart, you have to see the brave master who was willing, who was willing to lose his life to gain your life for God. Can you see it? Can you feel it? That's the first point, the brave master. Second, the true temple, verses 55 and 59, through 59. In verse 58, the witnesses accuse falsely Jesus, right? What is one of their accusations? Jesus is silent, but their accusation is that Christ would destroy the temple made by human hands, and in three days would rebuild another, not made with human hands. But look, although the accusation was false because they did not fully understand what they were saying and were accusing with evil motives, their witness, here's the point, ironically came to pass, right? 
with the death of Christ, that accusation, that witness was fulfilled. Even though the accusation was false in the death of Christ, the accusation is repeated in Mark 15, but turned out to be true. What an, what an irony. In his death, Christ destroys a necessity of a physical temple, and in his resurrection, Jesus builds a temple not made by human hands. Himself, his own body, the resurrection. In his ascension, Jesus enters in the temple not made by human hands. Heaven, as you learn in Hebrews chapter 9. And with his entire work, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus builds a temple not made by human hands. Know what it is? The church. Colossians 2, Ephesians 2. You and I. The new temple church. Do you see? The false accusation turned out to be true in order to reveal who the true temple is. Jesus Christ and His resurrection and us with Him as His body. That's the hope for death, don't you think? Oh, it is. The destruction of your body or your temple is an evidence for this construction of another one. Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus' work, when you die, you will be in his arms. What a hope. But more than that, you will have a new body as well. A resurrection. That's the new temple. That's the truth. Jesus is the new temple. And we are with him. Let me apply this. Do you follow death in your life, Christian? Yes, you confess with your lips that Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, you hear the sermon. And you say, yes, I, I see that. But in your daily life, is that true? Or do you or do I, in a daily basis, follow death? What do I mean by that? Do not have death as your shepherd, as Psalm 49 verse 14 says. That people have their lives fixed only in this world. Their properties, their hopes, their longings, their dreams are only fixed here. And the psalmist says they are falling to death as their shepherd. Jesus, the true temple, makes you remember resurrection. That your life cannot be summed up here. It cannot. And it's been three years since the pandemic. And since then I've been thinking about 
the reality of death. I think we'll still believe in the serpent's lie in the garden. When the serpent said to Eve, surely you shall never die. Isn't that what we believe still? Isn't that what we live? Uh, yes, intellectually, I know I will die. I see people dying. I go to the funeral. But that doesn't matter how old I am. Practically, daily, I still believe in the serpent's lie. Surely you shall never die. But here this morning, ironically, the true temple makes the serpent's lie to be true in the gospel. Just like the false accusation turned out to be true in Jesus. Let me say that again. The true temple makes the serpent's lie, surely you shall never die, to be true in the gospel. The truth that Jesus is the true temple, that he is life after death, that he is the resurrection makes us believe that even when we die, we will live forever with Him. Because of our true temple, Jesus, we shall never die, as He says in, in the Gospel of John. Because our world is not here. He will give us new life, new body, new world with Him forever. Do you believe that, Christian? Do you let that sink in right deep in your heart because of the truth that your Jesus is the true temple? Probably you know Johnny Erickson Data, don't you? She is now, I don't know, 72 years old. She was paralyzed in 1967 from the neck down because of a careless dive. She was paralyzed from the neck down since then, 1967. In one of her books, she said that she was in a prayer meeting. And the person who was conducting the prayer meeting asked everyone to kneel down. And she could not. She started to weep, not because she could not kneel down, but because of this. Listen, I suddenly realized, she said, that when I get to the wedding feast of the Lamb, heaven, the first thing I will be able to do on my resurrected legs is to drop down on grateful and glorified knees before Jesus, and then I'm going to get on my feet and dance. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives for someone with a spinal cord injury like me? Can you imagine the hope that this gives a, to a maniac, manic depressive? No religion, no other philosophy offer us new bodies, just new minds and hearts. Only in the gospel of Jesus can people hurting like me have such Hope to live. That's your Jesus. Only Him because He is the new temple, children. That you can have the privilege, children. Not to have your dreams only in this world. But because of your master, 
brave master, because he is the new temple, you can, have, you can have bigger dreams, greater dreams that goes beyond this world. And you are not slave to this earth. You are not slave to this reality. But you have a truth that the one who was dead rose again the third day and he's promising you that you will have new life with him that you will never, could never imagine. Can you see him like that? Can I see him like that? Who is Jesus? According to this text, he is your brave master. For feeble disciples like us. He is our new temple. Who turns lies into truth. Because of the gospel. And give us an unparalleled hope for life. And then thirdly. He is our royal priestly judge. Verses 60 to 64. Can you see the irony there? The judge of the universe in this passage is judged by depraved human judges. Right? That's the climax of the text. It's where Jesus is silent, but then the high priest doesn't hold any longer. And he asks, are you the son of the blessed? And Christ answers. He breaks the silence. And in his confession, Jesus could have responded to the high priest with many titles, names, and works that he has. But specifically, Jesus chose Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. Yes, you will see me coming with the cloud of heaven and sit at the right hand of God. Both stacks, Daniel 7 and Psalm 110, to show that he is the king and the high priest, not them. I am the king of kings and the high priest of the, all the high priests that possesses the ultimate authority in this universe. And I will put, and God will put, all the enemies under my feet. That's the person to whom you are talking. That's why he went crazy. He turned off his clothes. He knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Yes, I am, Jesus says. Yes, I am. That Messiah of Psalm 2 that you are quoting. Are you the son of the blessed? Yes, I am that Messiah that David, David was prophesying about in Psalm 2. And more, I am the Messiah of Psalm 110. And I am the son of man of Daniel 7. Who has the, all the authority over all nations. All principalities in power. I am the judge of the universe. I'm the royal and high priestly judge of the universe. And you are judging me? Oh, what an irony. The one who has all power is under human power in order to save. You see? The judge who is judged is the third Irony for you to see. The curtains of heaven pull back so that now, by your spiritual eyes, through the Holy Spirit, you can see there's no one like him. 
He's matchless. What kind of judge is that? That's the one. He is the judge of the universe who was willing and able to be under human power in order to save. What kind of judge is that? It's one of a kind in all history. No one like that. No one, children. No one. And that must produce holy life in you, you see? That's one of the things I want to stress in the sermon. The more you know your Lord, the more desire should produce in your heart to live for Him. Knowledge of Christ is the basis for a life of sanctification for your God. Holiness flows out of your knowledge of this amazing Savior. Let me show you how. The first is, when you hear that, all gossip should end, right? Of course. How can we have gossip in the church when you know that the judge of the universe was judged for you? It doesn't make any sense. Because the premise of all gossip is that you are better than the person you are gossiping about. You see that lady that went there, that did that? You are putting yourself in a higher standard and position than that person. Otherwise, you will not slander that person. But when you see that the judge of the universe was judged for you, how can you feel yourself higher than that person that you are gossiping about? It doesn't make any sense. There is another application that flows out of that truth. That the judge of the universe was judged, was judged should produce love for those that disagree with you theologically. Right? Self-righteousness is not only with works, good works, because I'm a good person. But as a Presbyterian as I am, I notice that I also have a self-righteousness based on doctrine. I'm a better person than that person because I know better. The only perfect theologian, Jesus Christ. The only perfect theologian was judged for you because of your, you have, and I do as well, sin in respect to doctrine as well. How can we feel superior to others because of sound, good theology? It doesn't make any sense. There's more. It should make you forgive people that wronged you. Can you see someone there that really, really wronged you? To be willing to forgive if that person comes with repentance. Because the judge of the universe was judged for you. How can you not forgive? And lastly, as application of this truth, this truth should make you leave the burden of your guilt upon that judge. Do you still carry the guilty, the guilt of your sin? Yes, I believe that Jesus accomplished on the cross my forgiveness, but you still are under the burden of guilt. 
And then many times in our modern life, it's not related to the law of God, but our own loss. It's because I did not achieve that uh, goal that I wanted so much, that job that I lost, that spouse that left me, because that child, you name it. Do you have a burden that you think that you cannot carry, that you have to carry and no one else? How dare you? How dare I do such a thing? The trial is over. Someone went for you and was judged for you. And you are now forgiven and have everything. Which is God himself. You see many times because we're still carrying a burden of guilt. It's because somebody else is a judge, not this judge. Maybe it's your father. Maybe it's your mother. Maybe it's your boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe it's your job or career. Maybe it's your beauty. Maybe it's your pleasure. Or anything that you can name it. This morning, God is calling you. No, those things are not your charge. This one is. And he was willing to be judged for you and for you to get rid of that burden. Come to him. Go to him. Go fast to him. And you will find relief. And then lastly, who is Jesus? He's your brave master. He's your true temple. He is your judge who was judged for you. The royal and priestly judge. And fourth and lastly, and I think the most beautiful part of the text. Don't sleep, please. Just pay attention to this last point. It's just one verse. And I think it's beautiful. Oh, it's beautiful. And I want you to challenge you. Can you see the irony in this last verse that I'm going to read now? Verse four, uh, chapter 14. Verse 65, he is the ultimate supreme prophet. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Can you see the irony? Can you? Hmm. That's why the importance for you to read in parallel with Peter is sandwich. You need to remember that. Okay? Because they are mocking Jesus, saying, prophesy. In another gospel, it reveals that they blindfolded Jesus and they hit him in the face and say, prophesy, who hit you? You just, uh, the, the, your accusers were saying that you prophesied that you will destroy this temple and build another one in three days. And you just prophesied to the high priest that you are coming in the cloud of heaven. You just said it. And you cannot tell us who hit you in seconds? What kind of prophet are you? You're a baloney prophet. You are a fake prophet. You are no prophet at all. They cannot tell us what happened in seconds. You cannot even predict who hit you. Come on. They are mocking Jesus. They are 
making fun of Jesus. They are laughing at Jesus, you see? And they are spitting on him. Mocking him. And here's the most interesting irony of all the other ironies in this narrative. Because this irony is the fulfillment of all the other ironies that we just saw. At the moment that they are mocking him and telling him that he is no prophet. See, the fragility, the weakness, and the denial of Peter are then fulfilling Christ's earlier prediction in Mark 14, verses 27 to 31. At the exact moment, inside of the building, but outside of the building, his prophecy has been fulfilled in Peter. And we, you and I, know that more than the characters that are hitting Jesus. That's the irony. That's the dramatic narrative irony. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it amazing? They are unaware of the fact, and Jesus is silent, but you, 2,000 years after of the event, now can see what these evil characters could never think about it. That Jesus is fulfilling what's going on in the life of Peter. The destruction of the temple and its rebuilding are now starting to take place. As Jesus predicted his death and resurrection in Mark 10. And that entire trial was the result of Jesus' prophecy. Especially in Mark 10. When he says that he was, they were going to spit on him. Read that later in Mark 10. And they are fulfilling their, you are no prophet at all. And spitting on him at the act, precisely at the act of spitting on Jesus. They are fulfilling Jesus' prophecy in Mark 10. That they were going to do exactly what he said. Wow. Glorious, isn't it? Extraordinary Savior. What a supreme prophet he is. There is no one like him. He is simply amazing. Don't you agree with me, Christian? He is incomparable. He is one of a kind. He is matchless. When human beings think they are mocking at Jesus, Jesus is the one who is laughing at their mocking. Do you see that? Jesus is the one who is mocking at their mockery. And letting us know, the readers now, about it. What an irony. And he is more amazing, I think, because this reminds us Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Remember the question of the high priest? Are you the son of the blessed? He was making reference to Psalm 2. And Jesus said, I am. And here at this point, when they are mocking Jesus, Psalm 1 and 2, when are read together, one can perceive that the mockers of Psalm 1, remember Psalm 1, the mockers of Psalm 1? will be mocked by God in Psalm 2. And you see that reality happening in Mark chapter 14. While Jesus' antagonists are mocking Jesus, marking, Mark is ironically mocking, and they're mocking against the supreme prophet by telling or letting the reader know more than the evil characters of his story could. The one who was considered a false prophet turned out to be the supreme, all prophet 
ultimate prophet of all. What a text. What a narrative. I challenge you, young people. You will not find any novel, any kind of literature like this one that you just read in Mark. Nothing. What a genius. The only explanation is that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's just mind-boggling. And that through that genius of writing that narrative, he's exhibiting the glory of your Savior. And let me end with this so that you can go home to worship this Christ. Because actually the cross is powerfully the most ironic prophecy in, in all history, isn't it? It is. It is. The cross is powerfully the most ironic prophecy in all history. You know already about this. Let me just remind you. With defeat on their cross is where you find the victory. In his humiliation, it's exactly there that he is exalted, defeating all the enemies. It is the wrath of God was upon him, my God, my God, that you see God's love for you. It is when everything was dark, midday was midnight, that you can see light. And it was with his perdition that we see salvation. It is with his service to serve and to be obedient unto the death and the death on the cross. With his service that we see his kingdom the cross is his throne of service. It is in his death that you see life. It is in his condemnation that you see forgiveness. It is through his wounds of that, on that cross that you are what? Healed. It is on the horror, horror of that cross that you see what? Peace with God. It is in the ugliness of his face and body you see beauty. It is hell on that cross that you can have heaven. It is an enmity. You see, he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me that you have friendship with God? It is in his, in his weakness that you see power, in his poverty that you see riches, in his failure, the failure of the disciples that you see his success. You see the betrayal of all his friends and disciples that you see Christ's faithfulness. It is in his loss that you see gain. And here on the cross that the judge of the universe was judged for you and condemned for you, that you see the shameness of the cross. It is with shame on that horrible, cursed cross that you see what? Glory. Glory shining from that cross. Irony and glory. When you see that, you see Christ being unveiled for you. 
if death cannot destroy your lukewarmness and your coldness and your lethargy to Christ and to his God, what else can destroy your lethargy and lukewarmness? What else? What else? So please go home and meditate upon the fact that the Jesus that you hear every Sunday is the Jesus who is your brave master, your true temple, the judge who was judged for you, and the supreme prophet of all. Let us pray. Our Father, thank you so much for Jesus Christ. May you open heaven through your word, by the Holy Spirit, so that we truly, may truly worship him in our hearts with sincerity and with joy. In his name that we pray.